starting <laughs> now. <laughs> this is Left Jess, the Hotel Reviews podcast. We are here uh, back again another Can week. I start the... Yeah, All right. go crazy, Anders. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Left Jest. Anders Lee here with Alex Patak. Hi, I'm Anders' friend. And Raghav Mehta. Hi, I'm Alex's friend. We are very lucky to be joined this week by Kate Evans. Hi, she I'm is all a of your new actress. friends. Hi, That's I'm right. <laughs> our our uh, globe-trotting friend, she's Bristol-based, but she's uh, Skyping in from Toronto. She was just in Brooklyn a couple days ago, and she was in, uh, she's all over the place. I, in international. I am literally all over the place. I apologize. No, don't be sorry. A true citizen of the world. If you're going to be um, my friend, you have to at least visit Brooklyn, or else you're not going to get me. Are you coming to Bristol? Are you actually coming to Bristol? I want to one day. I've heard it's very... Uh, <laughs> I've heard it's po- posh, as the British would say. It's Is so... That, that no, no, it's not posh at all. It's not posh? It's not posh. It's proper posh. Where I come from, it's Anders proper. Anders is canceling plane tickets <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> to me, posh sounds cool. I don't know. It has a different meaning over there. I think of, you know, the Spice Girl. But uh, Kate Evans is a... <laughs> I try not to think of the Spice Girls at all. <laughs> Friend of the show. They are, yeah, they've all been on to talk about uh, international politics. Um, I've, but, I've got a so, car- I've got a cartoon with with posh spice in it, and the end of my climate change book. Yeah, in the end of my climate change book, which is called Funny Weather: Everything You Didn't Want to Know About Climate Change But Probably Should Find Out. Then I have a, a little picture. Um, where I've got a little picture of what a newspaper would look like if everyone properly cared about climate change and it says things like Jeremy Clarkson nearly rehabilitated and considered for release back into the community and then it's got um, and then it says posh posh spice shows us her vegetable patch and then there's a picture of a stick of celery and a picture of Victoria Beckham but obviously I switched the labels on them and then everyone sniggered about the line Posh Spice's vegetable patch, and it's just the one time that I hadn't intended a double entendre. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You see, they got it out of uh, vegetable spice, I think. A veggie, <laughs> uh, new spice girl. Yeah, do you think it's too late? <laughs> Never too late. <laughs> They're going to re- have a resurgence, uh, I think, soon. Um, but you are you are not a Spice Girl, uh, although you are British. Um, that does but- narrow it down, yeah. It does, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but you have quite a few titles, cartoonist, activist, artist, author, mother. But one title that you do not um, embrace is journalist. And I was wondering if we could begin by asking why you don't uh, self-identify as a journalist. I was thinking about this last night, actually. It's because I started out in activism and in a childhood where I was involved in political movements where I could see that the mainstream media wasn't representing adequately or accurately what was happening i mean to the extent of i'd go on a 500,000 strong um campaign for nuclear disarmament march and they'd report in the papers that 40,000 people turned up like that's a lot of people to lose off the figures so um i always had a sort of a skeptical distance from journalism and then that became amplified when I was part of a group of radical activists who hung out in trees um, doing the road protest movement in um, the UK. And journalists used to turn up and they'd hang around the fire pit and they'd say, oh, can you just do that again for the cameras? And I'd be like, I'm just trying to make a cup of tea. Get that out of my face. Um, So... I, I think we were, we actually had a phrase for it, the media tart. We had a, a scepticism of whoever the person would be who would even speak to the press. So I was doing reportage, but always from the perspective of being a participant. And I still do graphic reportage these days because my latest book, Threads from the Refugee Crisis, is about the t- very brief period of time that I spent in uh, the Calais and Dunkirk refugee camps in northern France in the winter of 2015 Mm -hmm. to 2016. But I still didn't go with the aim of finding a story as a journalist would. I went with the aim of being a participant in the volunteer relief effort. And the reportage that I made came out of that. When I turned up at the camps, I didn't say, hey, you know what, it's okay, the cartoonist's here. Because to be honest, that would have been wanky. 
Could you do that again? I'm cartooning. <laughs> <laughs> Just well, that's the, no. That is the beauty of it, though, isn't it? You don't have to do that. You don't have to interview interfere with someone. Did you say that would anyway. be wanky? Yes, I did say that would be wanky. Is that not oh, a word? I've heard that uses an adjective. I'm just oh, a wanker. Yeah, no, wanker. delightful. There's so many different ways a British person can use the word wank. <laughs> well, oh we, my god! We love wanky. Uh, it's a, it's a, the tone of the thing. It's all just gone downhill straight away, hasn't it? I do apologize. No, not no, at this all. This is great. <laughs> Which we, a little bit of left, a little bit of jest. That's the name of the, the program. We will be replacing any uh, lewd language later with uh, <laughs> one of the finer classical piano pieces we can find. <laughs> um, but some some of the... Uh, I like the term graphic reportage. It's an interesting uh, way to, to phrase it. Um, a lot of your... You and, and some of your contemporaries, Joe Sacco, other people have been critical of the uh, journalistic world for a lot of things. Uh, but one of them, it seems, is this emphasis on uh, deadlines, having to produce things very short period of time. And I was wondering, as someone who... Um, by necessity, as part of your medium, takes a very long, like as you mentioned, you uh, visited Calais in 2015, 2016. Uh, so it, it's a long time from, from that to the release of, of threads that you have to, to produce this because you're um, producing a visual uh, medium. Um, does that also give you more reflection that um, improves the work in a way that uh, wouldn't be for, for print journalism? I think my deadline's probably tighter than it was for a print journalist in that I drew threads, all the roughs in five months, all the artwork in another five months, so 10 months in total. Like the rest mm -hmm. of the time that you see there is is based on the publishers. They they then add a whole bunch more time on post-production. Um, okay. Not entirely sure what they do with it all. Um, you know, there's printing, there's review copies, there's a whole sort of uh, book publicity machine that gets activated um, so uh, 10 months for producing a graphic novel is an is a very short period of time when you consider that I essentially drew 200 feet of artwork um, right. and that's down to point of a millimeter uh, accuracy so <laughs> like <laughs> I didn't have very many weekends um, but How do you feel um, about artists such as Jim Davis, creator of Garfield, who could turn out uh, long, complex weavings in just a day? Yeah, well, there's always room for jealousy when you pick up somebody else's graphic novel and go, hang on, they didn't even put the backgrounds in. How did they get away with that? You know, people, <laughs> I often pick up a graphic novel as well and just go, oh, it's just 80 pages. Why can't I ever do one that's just 80 pages? Why do they have to be 176 pages every time? Because I don't get paid anymore for it. I need twice as many pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this time around, I was like, you know what? It'll just be 120 pages. And I got to the page 120 on the drafting and I was just got really depressed and I had to go and drink some whiskey. It's going to be another 179 <laughs> pages and it was. Going and drinking whiskey is the unwritten ending of a lot of Garfield strips. <laughs> yeah. <And> podcasts. <laughs> cool, this one. Um, well, so as you mentioned, Threads from the Refugee Crisis is your latest book. Um, and it takes place in Calais at this place that's known as the jungle. And we're not talking vines and trees, nor are we talking Upton Sinclair. This is a... a, a what, can you talk a little bit about why this camp is known as the jungle and how uh, France and Europe kind of views this this um, this camp? Well, the camp's been demolished now, which is part of what happened during the course of the book and it's part of the narrative of the book. And the people who are living in Calais at the moment, because there are still refugees in Calais, they're living rough right. and then the police confiscate their bedding twice a week, which is a lovely humane attitude. Um, but yeah. the previous hum thank, thank your local police. Yeah, the previous way that the police upheld the law and humanitarian standards in Calais was rounding all the, the refugees up and letting them live on a garbage heap on some land near the port. And I think they thought that people would go away if they made it as horrible as possible. Um, so they kind of give them this scrubby bit of wasteland that's covered in bits of old concrete and asbestos and said, live there, but we won't give you any food or shelter. So there was a large volunteer effort to bring things to the jungle to help 
cope with the large influx of refugees that happened in 2015, but which is still happening to this day. Um, the it was the camp was called the jungle originally by Afghan men who were living there themselves, and it may simply have been a translation of the word wood, a woodland, but oh. it sort of stuck, and it does. You know, it was a bit like the Wild West. You are living in a place where there were rules. There wasn't a normal rule of law. Um, and there were some, it was incredibly unsafe and difficult for camp residents and incredibly dehumanizing. I don't think we should, you know, romanticize the play, The fact that that camp existed. It was full of rats for, for a start. However, it was better than nothing, which is what people currently have. So uh, the solution certainly wasn't demolishing the jungle and not addressing the fundamental causes of the crisis. Right. And as you, you pointed out, uh, there's no, in Europe, uh, there's free movement of people within the Euro European Union, but not of refugees, right? And so... How are these people supposed to survive now? Well, there's no safe passage for refugees. That's the fundamental problem. Eight and a half thousand yeah. people drowned in the Mediterranean in this last calendar year. That is, hot. I, it, you know, fishermen are pulling up human skulls in their nets. I mean, that's the ones we know about. Um, and that's irregular for fishermen. Uh, I don't know how regular it is for fishermen. I just know that that has happened. Um I don't have a fisher boat tally, you know, my, 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 omniscient, no, I don't either, my, my heard... omniscient skills as a cartoonist, but sorry, if you, you, you're, you're saying it, yeah. Um, so there's, once someone arrives in Europe, we have something called the Dublin regulation, which means that they have to claim asylum in the first safe country they come to. The reason why they introduced the regulation was to stop countries from saying oh yeah here you are you can't claim asylum here just go to the next country and claim asylum there so it was meant to make it absolutely clear that countries had an obligation to the asylum seekers that arrived in within their borders but what it means effectively is if people are trying to reach a particular destination then they don't want to claim asylum in Hungary and they're really trying to get to Germany or they're trying to get to the UK for whatever reason then they have to stay under the radar they have to stay undocumented they have they can't access health services for example should they be pregnant they can't in some cases use public transport because or even be given a lift a ride by somebody um, from one place to the next because then those people could then be viewed as people traffickers there was a case where a Norwegian, um, I think she's a Christian minister, um, she decided to help refugees who was literally walking along the roads by giving them a ride to Sweden. And she was arrested for doing that. That's a bummer. Just to clarify the situation. I've just got to say, you um, made a strategic error in bringing someone on for a funny podcast and then asking them about serious things. I mean, normal service will be resumed when I do something more lighthearted for my next. Oh, we love Bleak. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, it's it's always like this. Yeah, we are. Okay, it's more like. We had on, uh, just is very misleading. Is it more like laugh as the world burns? Yeah. That would be someone. such a better name for the podcast. We oh. actually had on uh, uh, Lubna Murray, who was with you on, on Tuesday at, at Verso Books on for an episode, one of our more uh, popular episodes. So we're used to this uh, subject matter. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I didn't laugh at all during that. But yeah. uh, I do have I did want to ask just a clarifying question about Calais. So the people waiting to maybe uh, migrate to the UK in the port of Calais, have they already claimed asylum no. or are they in limbo no, there? No, they're in limbo. They want to get to the UK for whatever reason. And there's an organization called Refugee Rights Data Projects, which has gone around and assessed people's reasons for coming to the UK, which they're pretty blatant about talking about. Um, and they include things like family reunion with family members, um, and they um, 
their knowledge of the language, the belief that Britain's going to be great, the fact that the people smugglers make more money out of taking them to Britain, so get, tend to bang on about how great Britain is. I mean, and to be honest, the fact that all the British volunteers who they meet are so incredibly lovely because they're the ones who bother to go and help refugees probably gives a misrepresentative of idea of how nice Britain is. You get there, you're bound to be pretty disappointed. Um, um, they selfless people. There is no none of them posh. Uh, some of them posh, actually. I did meet quite a few posh ones. Um, so, um, and there isn't safe passage. There isn't free passage across the channel. So the British border currently resides on French soil for the purposes of checking immigration at the ports of Calais and Dunkirk and I think Laos, which means that um, there's British border guards working on French soil, pulling people out of lorries. They scan the lorries to see that there's no human heartbeats in them. And, um, and then um, they... So the ways to get to Calais are to hide in the back of a lorry or to try and make it onto the uh, Eurostar, like which is a moving train, fuck's sake, uh, or to pay a people smuggler or to try and hide in the back of someone's car. Um, and that's really the only way across the border. I mean, they have pulled the remains of people out of the sea who've tried to swim. Hmm. What that goes back to the fisherman thing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the some of the sentiment that um, not the only factor producing these conditions, but certainly a major one. Uh, th in the book, you have a, a couple of pages where you have text from uh, people who are xenophobic, um, saying things like "You are importing death," and the way you um, depict it is is on a, a cell phone. Can you talk a little bit about? the decision to uh, draw the, the phone with the, the words on it rather than an actual person with a, with a speech bubble or something like that? Um, I wanted to anonymize. So I use hostile comments all the way through the book yeah. as a way of addressing the fact that there are very, very different views about refugees out there. And people have said, oh, they're trolls. But they aren't troll comments because they are people's sincerely held views. And for the people who believe that, mm -hmm. there is logical consistency to what they're saying. Um that first comment, the one that just goes, um, this comic could not be better propaganda for Islamic militant males invading Northern Europe if Lenin himself produced it. This very situation would not exist if they people in Calais did not ruin their homelands with ethnic war, religious hatred, you are importing death. That one, yeah? So that comment was yeah. made to my website and I approved it just because I thought, well, why shouldn't I approve a comment that I don't agree with. Like somebody's bothered to write it, I'll I'll I will let it show. I will let it stand. Get the discourse going. Sorry? Get some good back and forth. Well are we importing death? Yeah, let's find out. Why don't we let everyone in and see whether people die or not? I think you'll find on the evidence since they're drown if you don't let them in starve and get abducted by into trafficking rings and sold into prostitution i think overall a human migration policy would reduce death but let's i know what let's test this theory in the real world so i don't think they're trolls i think they're hostile in each of the comments that i've selected i've done to as a counterpoint to uh issues that are then explored in following chapters in the books which is more amusing than it sounds yeah okay or, or more more stylistically mm. coherent and the reason why I put them on phone screens is because, in part, because I was receiving information on my phone while I was in the camp. So it's a way of integrating the narrative into the fact that I'm standing in Calais, like, here is a phone uh -huh. and this is what I'm reading off it. And that's what's happening in some examples. Like, people, at the point when the, when the jungle was being evicted, people were working really, really hard in the refugee community kitchen, producing meals for all these displaced children. And people were writing on the internet underneath their posts and appeals for help, I hope you put rat poison in the food. So the volunteers yeah. who, are, who are creating the food are reading this on public forums. But um, Yeah, hopefully they're not following through on that. Yeah, no, I think that suggestion is one they decided to ignore. Um, but like... But the other thing is I use phones all the way through the book. It's kind of part of the fact that I'm creating a historical document right now 
I'm aware that those phones are going to date to right now. And the way that we mm. get information off phones is going to change radically probably in the next 20 years as much as it did in the previous 20. Um, and there's this whole thing about refugees having smartphones. They're like, ah, ah, if they've got a smartphone, they can't really be in trouble, can they? Kind of ignoring the fact that if you had to leave your country now, the one bloody thing you'd take with you would be a phone, wouldn't it? Like it is that it has actually made a physical difference to how people can migrate. The fact that you can carry something in your pocket that you can use to update information about your route as you go. Yeah, and it seems that that's something that uh, we keep coming back to is how is the discourse seems to be about how much of a right do these people have to just dignity, mm-hmm. you know, uh, oh, it, whether it's being alive. Or... While we're on the subject of phones, OK, find the Facebook yeah. group Phone Credit for Refugees or Google Phone Credit for Refugees because it's a fantastic organization. It's not officially a charity. I think it's just an organization. But what happens is you give them money and they put it straight onto a refugee smartphone, which I really like. Because like all those people like, they've got phones. I'm like, yeah, not only have they got phones, I put the credit on it. <laughs> I am paying for the phone. Yeah, it was refugee. We'll, Re- uh, f- we'll post a link to it. Yeah, on, it's called phone credit. On phone credit for refugees, and you can just send them money by PayPal, and they put it on someone's phone. And every and they prioritize it according to vulnerability because you've got a lot of unaccompanied kids who are being shipped across the continent by traffickers and then abandoned and sold into slavery and abuse. And uh, so, getting phone credit to their phone, it's could be life or death. The The phone seems like really smart storytelling because it does date us to this specific time, which is going to seem so strange once you're not spending all of your time on your phone. If you had enough bad information on your phone, it kind of just feels like your phone is the antagonist of your life <laughs> in a special way that's not going to make any sense in the future to people. Mm, yeah, and that will be the future where we have no borders and people can move freely across... Or it'll be the dystopian nightmare with the climate change breakdown where we've built big fortressy walls. Which one are we heading towards? Maybe the phones can make a boat then. Mm. That might be cool. We have everything well, to play. Wanna... Do you think phones will get bigger and bigger again until you can actually use them as physical shelter? I think you're going to put them in like your eyes and stuff. Yeah. No. We're just going to be called iPhones. iPhone. Oh, yeah. Injected. Mm. I definitely want to get to uh, No Borders in a minute, but uh, first I wanted to talk a little bit about actually uh, interacting with these people in the jungle. I think um, this might have been a quote from someone else, but they described it as a microcosmic disunited nation. No, that was me. That was me. Uh, you have, that was that you. Was me. Okay. Yeah, you have read the book. Great quote. You've just, that is such a good you've quote. You've just forgotten that you've read the book, but you have read the book. I'm glad to know it <laughs> stayed with you so well. Um, yeah, <laughs> I had a little bit of back and forth with my editor about whether I can make write the word disunited. Um, yeah, no, that's one of the unique things about the refugee crisis in Europe is that you've got a lot of different nationalities living in one place. Um, whereas more typically around the globe, a large refugee population will assemble. It, like a, a huge proportion of refugees consist of internally displaced people. So people have just left their home but stayed in the same country. And then you have <coughs> the people who can't afford to get away, who are on the borders of the country that they've just left. So in Kenya, in um, in Lebanon, like there are, I think a, a fifth of the pol- the population of Lebanon are currently Syrian refugees. So you've got huge numbers settled in adjacent lands, but they tend to be just like one nationality of people in those places. But the people who've made it to Europe are a, ne- a complete melting pot. I mean, you have some in, you know, there are some European refugees as well, They're Albanians. There's a lot mm-hmm. of Albanian kids who are fleeing domestic violence and coming to the UK and despite their, you know, their rights, their life being in danger back in Albania, they're being deported in the face of an unsympathetic asylum system. I mean, getting to the UK is only the start of the problem. I've been hanging out a little bit with Bristol Refugee Rights, which is a great organisation, and talking about the situation of 
of refugees once they get to the UK. And it's really dire. We've introduced new legislation, which means people are not going to have right to health care. And every time you rent a room to someone, you have to check their immigration status and people's driving licenses are going to get revoked if they don't have if they've got. Uh, immigration irregularities and it just means that landlords and nurses and dentists and doctors and teachers are going to have to turn into border agents and that's a big shift in society that's not good no it's not um but the the people themselves in the the, there was kind of a, a sense of uh, love and community, right, in, in the camps themselves. C- can you talk a little bit about how these people had, uh, another quote from you, a sense of how things should be in the world? They had, the, they uh, although they've been through awful, terrible things, they still had this kind of um, hope within them. Well, you can't really generalize, can you? But what you have is a large group of people. Um, at that time in Calais, it was predominantly male, Um and predominantly young, because a lot of the people with women and kids, it's a young man's game. You've got to try and jump and hide on a lorry, like in a truck. Like that's going to weed out some of the people with disabilities or with families. Um, so it's slightly misrepresentative. Mm-hmm. That's one of the classic differences between men and women. Uh, Well, well, I mean, you still get women, including pregnant women and women with babies jumping in the backs of lorries, but still. Um so it's slightly misrepresent the people who ended up in Calais are slightly misrepresentative of the European refugee situation as a whole, just because the fact of trying to cross the border is so difficult. Um, right. But everywhere you are with people, there is humanity. And there were so many examples of it that it was humbling, like people with just a small amount of food instantly sharing it with you and insisting, insisting that you eat, that they sit down and eat their food. This kind of like sort of easy, happy tradition of hospitality. It's crazy because I'm from England and England, English people, they're they're ever so set on being polite. They're ever so set on saying please and thank you and sorry and excuse me. Yeah. But we're not actually truly polite in that we're not actually generous. You'd sit opposite someone in a train carriage and they could be hungry and you'd eat your food and that would be completely normal and to do anything else would be seem the opposite. And then I'm hanging out with people from Arabic cultures and Kurdish cultures and Afghan cultures where the situation's kind of... I mean, there's a lot of African people as well in Calais. I just didn't happen to be with them at this point. And um, they are not people who say please or thank you very quickly, that you're standing in a distribution and, and you hand them an item and they go, yeah, 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 and walk away. And I'm like, oh, but they didn't say thank you. But they then sit down, they break bread, they invite you in, and they, and there's an ap- automatic assumption. Like, this guy was just going, oh, it is, oh, oh, we were hanging out around there in the evening and I, and I went, okay, like, we've got to go now because it's late and we're tired. And I went, oh, you are tired. You sleep here. You sleep here. I will go out of the jungle and go in and, and, you know, walk around all night because you're sleeping in my bed. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We are English. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> but that's just, that's just Kurdish culture. It's like, of course, of course you can have my bed. Right. I mean, how many people would you be like that with in 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 America or you know, you know, it, it's it's a really different culture, and I can't well, help wondering. Well, wouldn't that be the, the best? Yeah. I can't help I'm wondering. Great at sharing personally, I think I make up for the others. I can't help wondering how different it would be if we were the ones being uh, evicted out of our countries by war. What kind of reception we would get if it was Arab nations uh, consistently being the hosts instead of the unfortunate um, military, industrial, political realities of um, oil-based warfare in their home nations. For Americans specifically, we would want to bring our guns too, which is like a whole other obstacle. Yeah. Well, I now you got to really be sharing. I mean, my immediate response to Trump getting elected was maybe people will have some sympathy for refugees when they've got American accent. Well, and that's something people often fail to recognize is that uh, these, you know, they're coming. You know, you were talking about earlier these that uh, the one of the trolls or or um, 
spirited argumenters said that these people, yeah. you know, caused these problems in their own countries, which is clearly not the case, not to reduce it all to, to the West, but that it has a lot to do with uh, not only imperialism, but as you point out, climate change, why, why people are, are fleeing. So that's good. So you were talking about climate change and its contribution to refugees. And then I was thinking of something funny to say in response, which I can't. So um, I was just going to say that if you are going to play classical music, I, I think you should put Chaz and Dave on instead. Hmm. Well, I won't differ from my normal uh, routine of classical music. The fans have expectations, but it's great hearing from from uh No, from come guests. on. Maybe I'm, we'll I'm a, Spice Girls. No, I'm of Cockney heritage. You have to have Rabbit, 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 Rabbit by Chaz and Dave. Honestly. Maybe we can find like a classical cover of that great song. <laughs> but we're gonna. I'll, I have a website I go to. Maybe like a Spice Girls okay. classical mashup. That'd be good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Too. So. Imagine all that Botox well, in one place. I bet if they all went in the swimming pool, they wouldn't even sink anymore. Wow, that sounds great. <laughs> uh, more reasons to get Botox. It sounds like some nightmare. You just got excited about the idea. You got really excited about all the idea of the Spice Pool girls in a swimming pool, didn't you? It's teen fantasy yeah, really coming the to the fore. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the number one Spice Girls podcast. <laughs> I'm Sporty, and I'm Anders' friend. <laughs> well, something that would be, I think, we would all have a problem with is if the Spice Girls showed up to a place like Calais or somewhere and tried to record a video. Uh, and you, I, you're very conscientious of your place as a uh, Westerner, or more specifically a British person who's uh, Caucasian extraction, uh, mm -hmm. coming into a situation like this. It, how is that something that you, you factor into your work? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that at times there's critical distance in that I give... <laughs> I make myself... I, I draw myself a, a slightly unflattering representation of myself. Like, a friend Nadine said... You made yourself look like a potato, she said. You don't look like a potato in real life. And I was like, I feel like a potato. I hope I can show in the book how hopelessly unqualified I feel to be able to handle this situation. And from time yeah, to time... Kate, why won't you sex up this uh, refugee crisis for everyone? <laughs> hmm. So um, that's funny, actually. Someone gave a, a, a review of my Rosa Luxemburg book and they said they had... They haven't made her glamorous at all. And I'm like, what the actual <laughs> fuck? No, no biographies of Marx make him glamorous either. And that's not even true. Just because I drew her with hairy legs, I thought that was unglamorous. I think that's historically accurate. And I think it's damn sexy. Anyway, um, the... Um, uh, so I have myself as this central character and sometimes the joke is about me. Like there's this point where I turn up at the jungle and there's this 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 kind of handwritten restaurant there's this restaurant with this handwritten menu on the outside of it and it says uh you can buy eggs beans b double -E and then it says you can buy beef soap and i'm going i'll have the beef soap a speciality like i'm just taking the piss and the guy who's serving me the food just looks at me with this like really look in his face and that's where the humor is the humor is that i'm the idiot and you can do that. You can give people agency by just showing a look of defiance or amusement or bemusement or whatever. I mean, and there's examples of that in real life as well. Like um, my friend was hanging around um, with a bunch of Afghan men, like slightly older. And these basically these white kids rocked up with a guitar and were trying to rouse people in a chorus of kumbaya or something. I think they decided that if they went to the jungle and sang songs with a guitar, it would make everyone happier. And they were sort of like that does sound fun. struggling through a public performance of these things. And, and the old Afghan men turned to my friend and went, it is so sad. These children have nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> 
that is their general perception everywhere a little bit. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I said I don't want to generalize. I think quite a lot of this conversation is going around these people and, you know, there's uh, these people when talking about refugees. And I mean, the whole idea of a refugee is an artificial construct. But what you're dealing with is millions of people. So I think it's very hard and from from multiple from all the corners of the globe. So it is hard to generalize in really. I wanted to ask about that a little bit, like the perception of the refugee. Um, So outside of just, you know, they're terrorists that ISIS sent to eat white babies. Like, what is the most frustrating perception people in the UK have of migrants? The idea that there isn't enough to go around. And it's bollocks. It's fucking bollocks. There's a really good uh, poem that Holly McNish did called mathematics which you should also link to from this podcast and she talks about the economy and how one and one makes more so you get more you let more people in they bring more they do more and i don't want to get into arguments about immigration which center around the idea of the good immigrant or the the worthy immigrant or you know the the person who's worthy of our help because i believe every human being is worthy of respect However, the demographic of the refugee population, unfortunately, is such that they are overwhelmingly of working age and that benefits the UK economy. So it makes absolutely no fucking sense to shut them out. Like the Germany has accepted 100,000 refugees and they haven't done that as an act of charity. They have done that because they know it makes economic sense. And if all countries could scale up their humanity uh, and they're long-sighted they can play the long game like germany there wouldn't be a refugee crisis right so it's the not marxist way of thinking about uh utilitarian uh i'm making a capitalist argument for free (laughs) migration of people people (laughs) (laughs) but um it's just that it's specifically the argument that is put in time and time again is we haven't got enough. We haven't got enough because of austerity. There's not enough to go around. And the easiest way to counter it is to tell the parable of the banker, the worker and the immigrant. And there are 10 biscuits on a plate and the banker takes nine of them and turns to the worker and says, watch out. He wants your biscuit. Mm. That's in Red Rosa, right? No, that's not in Red Rosa. That's just a, like an urban mythy thing. There, but there are there are food based Carl Das Kapital analogies. You've got kind of a half memory of quite a lot of my work here, haven't you? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, what you've got in Red Rosa is factories made of black bread with celery chimneys. Half memory. The yeah. rest is on point podcast questions no, i tell you what it is it's because a large proportion of your thinking and working brain is occupied with thinking about the spice girls in a swimming pool if you can get that image out of your head right now you'll be on the road to socialist revolution and it'll all be okay okay so who hands up who now is not thinking about the spice girls in a swimming pool there are no hands up oh, i'm sorry but we're doomed <laughs> That's the problem with live with growing up under third way uh, Blairist uh, culture yeah. and yeah yeah I'm yeah I, I, I think we should blame Tony Blair <laughs> I think we should blame Tony Blair in general for you know for invading Iraq but in the meantime we could blame him for the Spice Girls as well yeah yeah uh, well speak I, I certainly, <laughs> agreed I certainly don't want to to generalize all I think it is a difficult balance to strike between um have trying to have a macro analysis of these things uh without generalizing but um something I wanted to ask you about is within these different uh groups of refugees of course there's as you mentioned there's a lot of different it's not a monolith at all um uh, but what how does some of the perceptions differ among uh people coming from different countries or continents I, I think um one of the quotes uh i took from tuesday was invade there's a, a perception of invading black black african hordes that people don't want to see but on the other hand they're more comfortable with people coming from syria and some of that m- may have to do with a, a middle class designation yeah well i was this this is in response to the debate that happened at verso on tuesday night as the launch event yeah. for um threads and it is actually talking about something that my book doesn't address. Now, what I've done in threads is create a very 
richly textured narrow slice of life about what exactly happened to me in the camps. And I happened to personally only really spend time with Iraqi Kurds and Afghan people. And the there's an artistic um, there's an artistic kind of like um, synchronicity or like there's something good about that when writing for the British audience in that those are countries that we invaded with our empire a hundred years ago and right. also invaded recently and bombed extensively. Those are the two ongoing modern conflicts and they also have their history in the British Empire. So it's not bad that I was only writing about Iraqi Kurds and Afghans from that point of view. However, within the discourse of the refugee crisis in general, there is an, a racism. And it's that there are different ideas out there about who the worthy refugee is. And when the refugee is coming from a country which is of medium economic prosperity, like Syria, where the people are lighter skinned and where there's, you know, maybe more points of cultural contact than there are with someone from Sudan, there is more public sympathy for them. And often we see the, the refugee crisis being reduced to the situation of people in Syria. And that's really that's really misrepresentative. It's not only Syrian people that need refuge. And we're seeing a prioritizing of Middle Eastern refugees over African refugees, and that's really unfair. And then we have two different stereotypes at play. One is that all Arab people are terrorists, and the other one is that we can't possibly let Africans in because there's too many of them. And to do with that, mm. there is this underlying fear of the black savage. Right. And um, I don't really that, have enough black voices in my book. I mean, I'm not going to write a Threads Mark Two, but if I had been able to, I do wish I could have got some insight into what it was like for this for the Sudanese and Eritrean communities in the jungle because they had a geographically distinct area, and it was I don't know. It just looked really different. It looked really interesting. I, I wish I'd made those connections. However, I don't wish that the book was any longer because 176 pages or 200 feet of artwork is enough drawing. This is not a, a Sunday morning cartoon strip by any mm. stretch. Well, and you kind of have a conclusion that definitely would not be able to fit in a, a like a cartoon panel, which is that uh, you eventually want no borders. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? It's just sort of an understanding of what no borders means sort of snuck up on me through looking at this from so many different perspectives. It's basically a border wall is a form of apartheid. And, mm. you know, like 150 years ago, if you'd said men and women need to be equal, then people would have laughed you out of court. They would have said, of course, that's an impossibility. Women could never do this, that and the other that men can do. But now it's taken as read that although we haven't achieved equality, is at least a laudable aim. And there's sort of this pretense that, that women and men can be equal, although the economic facts on the ground don't bear that out. Yet we find it completely natural. I mean, and there is a fact that we live our life with a national identity. The nation gives you your secu social security number. Every part of the bureaucratic and administrative, um, every bureaucratic and administrative function of your life is rooted in your national identity. You know, you are a, a Canadian or you are an American or you are a, or you are a British person when it comes to interacting with I've just generalized there massively from a white Western perspective. But you you carry that national identity with you every time you open a bank account or or, you know, I, I mean, it may be different in different parts of the world, but certainly that's the, the perspective in in the West. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to see what the borders do and what the borders do is they lock in inequality because money is allowed to travel freely around the world. Capital can travel to wherever wages are the lowest and union protection is the weakest. And then the goods can just be shipped back. But people are not allowed to. And in the places where people are allowed to travel freely across the borders, you can see what a difference that makes. 
And it's not the case that one country enters, empties out and another country fills up. If you look at Niger and Nigeria, Nigeria is far richer than Niger. But people from Niger, they travel over and they work in Nigeria and then they go home again because they can. Whereas when you inter introduce um, border restrictions, it has an effect of solidifying um, migration. So at the point when Moroccans could travel freely to Spain, work there for a summer and then go home again, you didn't have as many Moroccans in Spain as you did once they started introduce stopped issuing work permits and they made people and they started keeping Moroccan immigrants out because then the incentive was that if you needed that Spanish work you found a way to be documented in Spain and then once you had your Spanish passport you didn't go back to Morocco again so free movement of people is key in addressing global inequality and with um one of the things that happens when immigrant populations move from one country to another is they send money home. So when you have countries, the situation where people can move freely, that automatically equalizes out the inequality around the world. Remittances that people send, the money that people send home to their families in their countries of origin, it dwarfs the global aid budget by think a factor of three or four. So the official attempts by charities and governments combined to patch up global inequality is nothing compared to people's ability to do it themselves to help make home countries richer and i think in the future that last great massive unstated inequality will become obvious because there's going to be parts of the world that are not habitable anymore so what the fuck are we going to do with those people and when are we going to make a decision that a human being is a human being and when they have something to offer we should reach out our hand and find out what that is that was a good answer <laughs> uh, <laughs> small follow-up though would would you make a distinction between no borders and open borders in other words there are some people some of them neoliberals who uh like the idea of open borders precisely for the free movement of capital, which could um, further exploit migrant workers while still leaving in place the nation state as a structure and, and capitalism. I'm in favor of social change. I'm not actually a revolutionary socialist, although I do write cartoon books about particularly badass ones. Um, right. In that I think that the idea of a revolution, which completely overthrows the existing order and then replaces it with a couple of new men at the top is uh, it's only society turning full circle in that it doesn't address in a it doesn't address the power structures it simply sort of replicates them that would seem to be the way history has gone i'm in favor of social change on all levels but i am in favor of radical and meaningful social change i mm -hmm. certainly don't think for example the the refugee solution which is being mooted as being put in place in Lebanon that we should open social enterprise zones where where Syrian refugees can pack things uh, for IKEA on poverty level wages I don't think that's anything other than exploitation and I think ideas like that for helping refugees should be actively resisted but I think that everything that happens on the from the macro level down to the micro level to assist you know to challenge racism and uh, and and reinforce basic humanity and help people i think all of those things are good so i'm not going to sit here and plan whether we have to dismantle the nation state in order to reform it utterly i just want to say that taking the long view of what what the world's going to look like in three or four hundred years time which obviously I'm never going to see, yeah? But where well, I want us to be travelling to is not something where we've got a wall round one patch of the land. Well, yeah. tides of people crash against the outside of it and die in their millions. That's hard to argue with. Uh, but uh, I think that's a... a important point to end on you know we we uh may not see this world in our lifetimes but it's it's certainly worth 
fighting for and who uh, matters as uh, as long as uh, whether I, this will happen in our lifetimes you know who knows whether our lives will be long enough to bring it about to quote doctor to misquote dr luxembourg there <laughs> right and, and to quote the spice girls friendship yes. never ends unlike the world yeah wow there we go. <laughs> wow so um normally we end on a spice girls quote but um <laughs> i feel like we, we should just Shout out uh, some of the great work you've done. So your new book is uh, Threads of the Refugee Crisis. Check out Red Rosa for sure. I loved it. Okay, I maybe and, and... cried at the end, Okay, let which me is jump embarrassing. Okay, if yeah. you know or anyone who may know anyone who wants to reproduce in any form, I've written a book called Bump, How to Make, Grow and Birth a Baby, which is a choose-your-own-adventure story of fertility, pregnancy and birth which gives you all the information you would need to know, for example, and like it's got it all in there. It's got miscarriage, abortion, early pregnancy, late pregnancy, uh, natural birth. And if you need to turn to the cesarean section, I am not going to judge you. And as well as that, I have the food of love, your your formula for successful breastfeeding. And I think quite a lot of politics can be rooted in the way that we treat our babies. Like, Mm. Is a baby someone who has to do what you want them to do, or is your job as a parent to find out what their wants and needs are? And I think you can take that from the parent-child relationship out to the world in general as well. Challenge, challenge abuse at all levels. Um, so yeah, check out the food of love. It's not not necessarily just about feeding babies with your tits in their mouth. It's more necessarily about a kind of a way of being with your baby again in a non- non-judgmental way and there's also funny weather everything you didn't want to know about climate change you probably should find out and there's also my obscure like self-published magnus opus underground document cops the cartoon book of tree protesting which i published in 1998 and then i spent all the money on chips and beer and a truck which i drove to hungary Woo. <laughs> you gotta dig in the crates yeah in it but it's yeah it's 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 a you know it's a little gem that book i get people writing to me and going i lost mine in a house fire how can i ever replace it and i'm going i don't know i've only got (laughs) you can't (laughs) i blew that money (laughs) (laughs) if anyone wants to republish come on listen in well let us know if it's ever reissued uh and thank you so much for coming on left dress today Oh, cheers. Nice one. Nice one having me. If you ever want to catch me on another day when I'm on a vague high from doing Canadian national TV and then just want to experience the gritty authenticity for talking shite with you guys and all the Spice Girls in a swimming pool, then give me another shout. Absolutely. Okay. I'd be happy to do that. Thanks so Guaranteed. Okay. Thanks so much. 